Hello and welcome to the arbitration station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gaillard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Sadia Bhatti. I'm Joel Dalkist. And I'm Brian Kotick. And we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration. 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world and 1% of gloomy, dark, gray weather in my <laughs> part of the world. <laughs> it's way more than 1%, so let's be honest. <laughs> I know. Oh, well, so in the last six months, I think it is a percent. We've had a good, a good last six months, let's say that, in terms of weather, at least. Where in the world are you talking about that, the weather? Where, where in the world are you, Joel? I am in London. I'm in uh, my office, actually, Chambers, uh, probably mildly violating UK restrictions, but we had some deliveries coming into the office, so I, I thought I might as well record and work from here today. Where in the world are you, Brian? I'm in East London, uh, still London, in my home office, breaking it in nicely. I was actually on a call the other day, and someone saw the cat tree that I had in my background, and so the entire conversation talked about my cats. So that was quite nice. Where uh, in the world are you, Sadie? Oh, sorry. I was going to jump in and do a, a, a pet thing. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> you know, I was just going to say that I've seen several arbitrator pets recently through the, the remote hearings. Several dogs and cats walking in during <laughs> discussions. That's amazing. That's like unexpected, you know, participation from cats and dogs. Exactly. I wonder. I wonder if you have to regulate that to some extent. And there oh, was I, I there was a jo- joke. A chair in one case said that we have to pause and see if this cat is on the pre-approved list of attendance you know, for security <laughs> reasons. <laughs> Very funny. Yeah, <laughs> that's hilarious. Well, I I am because of the grayness. I'm also in the United Kingdom. I'm still in my home office in Cambridge. Um, yeah. So still working, uh, working from home for six more months. <laughs> Who knows? God knows for how long. God knows for how long. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so what have you guys been up to? I've been listening to some webinars that I would not participate to if they were physical. So, you know, I'm taking advantage of this whole we're um, all remotely connected, like some webinars organized by the Venezuelan Association, you know, there was a talk by Gary Bourne or, you know, by the Hong Kong International Arbitration Center. You know, it, these are usually conferences that I don't think I would make the travel. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, I think it's a good, uh, it's it's one of the positive impact of um, of this remote working and COVID and everything. I think we did speak about that last time as well, but I think it's, it's really making um you know, access to knowledge <laughs> wider at a wider scale, which is really good. And people are sharing ideas from different jurisdictions, which don't usually mix. So that's really good. You, you, two, you two are both quite like clued in and updated on these kind of 
seminars that or webinars that you wouldn't necessarily attend or listen to. Where do you guys have, is there a central source or do you guys just search around the entire web to see if there's anything to watch? No, I, I don't think that's a central source. Like everything else in arbitration, it's decentralized and fragmented, <laughs> but I don't look very proactively. I, I'm on all of the email lists, I think, that are available ah. for the various young clubs and normal clubs for also for non-young people. And LinkedIn has been very helpful to me. I see a lot of things pop up in my LinkedIn feed. And as Sadia said, normally I would be like, I probably have to work and there's no way I'm going to you know, fly to Paris for the day to attend this mm-hmm. thing. But if it's two hours on Zoom, I might as well. So I sign up. That's true. Yeah, the- same here. It's just um, usually just emails, invitations, or I mean, LinkedIn, to be honest, has been has been um, has been a good source of information, but I that's probably a good segue for what we're going to speak about um, on the podcast uh, this session. Um, I'm going to twist things around to just keep the segue going, but <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I might start with a happy fun time topic or not so happy fun time topic about which is about doom scrolling, and I won't say too much about it right now, but it's about you know when we spend maybe too much time on the internet doing certain things, including LinkedIn, actually. Mm. Well, then, to segue off your segue, we can start (laughs) with the second segment, which will be a a little rundown of the right to be heard in the time of the pandemic. So um, we had a recent case um, with Spain challenging an extra tribunal for hearing a renewables claim bought by several German banks and the German banks represented by Sabine Conrad. So now she's on the other side of a challenge to the entire tribunal. That's very interesting. Can't wait to hear about that. Mm. And I'm going to run with the segue and twist it because the, the flip side of what we just said when we were praising how easy it is to attend things remotely is that you do not do things in person. And one of those things that I hopefully should have been doing, and I think maybe Sadia too, if, if time allowed for it, uh, is of course the Uncentral Working Group, which we keep coming back to on this podcast for obvious reasons. And they are now sitting, I guess they are sitting in Vienna, a few of them, but uh, like everything else, it's done remotely. I think it's only down to four hours a day because of these typical time zone issues. It's just what is like the, the midday uh, in, in Europe so that people can attend from all over the world remotely. One of the things they are talking about this week, and here I want to already preemptively correct our segment because we weren't sure if they are talking about it this week, but they are, is the Advisory Center for Investment Law or Investment Disputes, uh, which may be set up as part of the Uncentral Working Group. And they're talking about it in the context of dispute prevention. That's the umbrella. And I am talking to a very thoughtful uh, person about this, Jeremy Sharp, who has done a billion different things in the world of arbitration, including representing the United States in various capacities and working for Sherman Sterling as a partner. He is now an independent public international law and international arbitration practitioner in Ottawa in Canada. And he has been uh, attending the working group, which we will get back to during the interview, and is saying particularly he, he has a, a specific interest in this advisory center. So we thought he would be a good person to bring in to, to talk about this. Amazing. So first interview of the season. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
That's right. I don't know if Jeremy knows this or if he cares, but it's an honor <laughs> nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> yes, one of many interviews. We have a few lined up this season that we're excited about, so happy for him to kick us off. Yeah, same. And speaking of kicking it off, I was going to rant a little bit about The Economist writing about the Uncentral Working Group, or rather using the Uncentral Working Group as a kickoff point to write about investment arbitration and how investment treaties in general and the ECT and cases brought under the ECT in particular are uh, an obstacle uh, for uh, environmental improvement in various ways, which rubbed me the wrong way. And I have a long history of, of being annoyed with the economists coverage of this as <laughs> loyal listeners will know. But I will say this uh, because we don't have maybe the time or the inclination to engage with the merits. Uh, they used the headline international treaty. What it was in the headline, like how, how some international treaties are bad for the environment or something was the headline. Mm-hmm. And I just mm-hmm. want to say now, because I've been really, really annoyed with people saying the global pandemic for the last six, eight months that every pandemic is by definition global, and by the same token, every <laughs> treaty is by definition international. <laughs> so it's redundant to say international treaty, the economist. Every treaty is international. We don't have any domestic treaties because then they are not treaties. Shape up. This is me splitting hairs for those who can see the video <laughs> recording on our YouTube channel. It's not, though. We're lawyers, and in headlines in particular, <laughs> you'll get kicked out of your law firm job if you wrote something like that in a, like a, a oh, subheader yeah. in a submission. Alas, the last thing you do when you file a submission is go through the table of contents and make sure there are no typos and make sure everything makes sense because that is the first thing people see. Yep. Or that, at least that's what I do. The and the thing. title, like Jill says, the title. Oh, is yeah. It's important. But you know what, Jill? I have to give them credit that they're not saying ISDS is, uh, is an obstacle to the environment because that's often the discourse, like how arbitration is an issue when really the the conversation should be under the underlying provisions in the treaty. So at least I can give them that. They didn't make that mistake. Because I've seen a lot of articles, you know, saying arbitration is evil because of Philip Morris cases and all of this. And then you're like, well, you don't, you know, we can have a conversation, but the problem is not arbitration. The problem is the underlying treaty. I have to actually look this up now to make sure that we are uh, paying the respects that the economist deserves that, the headline is how some international treaties threaten the environment. Then there's a subheadline: investor state dispute settlement provisions are blamed <laughs> for impeding government action. So actually, they're doing both. Wait, did it oh say ISDS provisions? Yeah, provisions. ISDS provisions are blamed for impeding government action. Well, is oh that what your points on you? Yeah, Wait, exactly. I, that's exactly. I'm sorry, I hadn't seen that, and uh, so that I, I think there's a real conversation about this. Like, how is arbitration, the process, the dispute resolution mechanism, the issue? Um, I don't. I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is the underlying rights arising out of the system. Right. Um, the substance norms and procedure always exactly. substance and procedure. <laughs> and I'm trying to bite my lip and not say international treaties now because I'm worried about what a certain professor Dalkist is going to say. So yes, a treaty, what the treaty provides. <laughs> yeah. I just um, had a genius idea before we launch into our first topic. Instead of getting salt and pepper shakers that say S&P, we should get substance and procedure shakers. Oh, oh that's amazing. 
<laughs> natural ad man, right? <laughs> All right. Check out our merch on our website. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's start with uh, Jeremy Sharp on the advisory center. So should we move to today's topic, perhaps the the or an international investment advisory center, which is maybe one of the few things in the Uncertral Working Group that there seems to be somewhat of an agreement around. There are still some other very thorny issues, but this particular point, there seems to be some sort of agreement around, although the exact shape and form has not been determined yet. You've written a, a blog post about this. Uh, on uh, EGIL blog and also participated in the working group so you feel like a, a good person to, to talk to about this center or center question mark I, I don't think we should be looking into the tea leaves but uh, if we start with the first and very obvious questions what is such a center to do what is the the plan what, what is the, the intended purpose I think that's the central question You've listened to the debates as well. There does seem to be consensus that states would benefit from some sort of assistance mechanism, an advisory center or some other form of assistance. That seems clear, one of the few clear things that has emerged from the discussions. But at least from my listening to the discussion of the states and reading their submissions, I don't think there's any clear idea of what the center should do. And that's why I think UNCITRAL has, the secretariat has circulated a questionnaire for states. What do you think the center should do? And what are the priority services that you think it should provide? Because if you listen to some states, they feel like a center should do a lot and perhaps lift some of the burden off of these developing states in particular to represent themselves in investment disputes. And if you listen to some other states, they're concerned that how would this mechanism actually work in process if a, an assistance mechanism, an advisory center, were to step into the shoes, say, of the state or its outside counsel, lots of issues arise, um, whether it's conflicts or confidentiality or costs. And so what could this thing do practically, politically, economically, so forth. You have worked for a state, for the United States, both in, in, in disputes and I assume also in treaty negotiations, and you've been in private practice. What is your view? Is there um, a, a problem with capacity constraints representing states or seeing it as, as you have from, from different sides of, of the problem? I believe there absolutely is a capacity concern and that Part of the legitimacy crisis and investment arbitration is a capacity problem. And it's interesting you raised the example of the United States, having worked in the office of the legal advisor, in the office that represents the United States government. I didn't appreciate it at the time, but as various states would come in to speak to the United States about the problems they were experiencing in investment arbitration, and as they thought about how they might change the institutional processes in that state to better represent themselves going forward, you begin to reflect on what it is that the United States has in place that gives it an advantage over some of these other states. 
And in some sense, the United States was fortunate simply because the same office that represents the U.S. government in investment disputes was already in place to represent the United States in disputes, say, before the Iran-U.S. Claims Tribunal. And so the United States had, in large measure, already gone through the institutional capacity building to establish a, an office to represent the U.S. government effectively. And then when you begin to ask, say, a state, well, how do you organize yourself to represent the state in an investment dispute, you realize that there are potentially very significant gaps in their representation. So I started to think about, well, what are the pillars of effective representation that you would want to see as a state for investment disputes? And also comparing against the U.S. practice and some of the problems that we would find in investment disputes uh, ourselves, just as cases come along and you have more and more experience. And I think I, I could at least identify five pillars that states absolutely have to have in place. The first are standard operating procedures for handling notices and claims. There has to be some mechanism that when an investor sends in a notice of a dispute or request for arbitration, that that notice or request does not languish in the desk of some individual, say in a line ministry, but it makes its way to the relevant office to take action. We have these cooling off periods in many treaties, but they are useless unless a relevant office receives the notice or the request and then can take action on it. And the U.S. government has put such uh, notices, uh, the information about these notices in its treaties so the investor knows to send it to the executive office of the Office of the Legal Advisor, which then forwards it to the claims office. So the standard operating procedures are taken care of. The second, <clears throat> the second one is authorities. Do you have an entity, usually a lead state agency, who has the legal authority to represent the state, that has all of the laws in place to get access to witness testimony, to get access to documents from other ministries, to appear before the tribunal and to represent the state? And again, if you don't have that in place, you find yourself in a situation of one state that came in to visit the United States State Department and the Canadian uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, where they say our ministry didn't have the legal authority actually to compel another ministry to give us the documents necessary for an arbitration. And so we had to draft a law to make this compulsory. And we see this as well. You see it in federal states, problems where, say, the United States government doesn't have the legal authority to compel, say, the governor of California to turn over documents uh, to the State Department to defend the United States in a claim arising out of California measures. So there are other things you need to do beyond establish the authorities, like confidence building and educating subnational authorities or various others on the processes to make them understand the process and to give you the information that you need to, to defend the state effectively. So beyond standard operating procedures, beyond authorities, another advantage is to have either counsel in place or the mechanisms in place to obtain outside counsel effectively. 
Because again, if it takes you a year to go through the public procurement process of hiring counsel, you've not only squandered your cooling off period, but you may already have missed deadlines in the arbitration process, like constituting the tribunal. And we see this not infrequently, where states have not gotten their act together early enough to play a an important part in this very crucial early stage of the proceeding. The fourth is simply coordination. You have to have some mechanisms in place that the lead state agency can coordinate with the other ministries or other parts of the government at the national or sub-national level to make sure that all interests of the state are being represented effectively before the tribunal and not simply the narrow views of any client ministry, as well as outside coordination, making sure that this office is coordinating with other treaty parties, with investors, with, with investors from third countries, and, and so forth. And the final one is money, funds. You have to have some mechanism in place to be able to pay for this arbitration. And that's a real challenge for, for many states to, to be able to pay the enormous costs uh, of these arbitrations. So thinking through what I consider these five pillars is essential for states and will give them an enormous advantage right from the outset in their ability to defend the state effectively in investment cases. It's a great overview. <laughs> and circling back to the to the center, do you see the the advisory center's primary function to work as sort of a, a deliberative hub where states can get together and ex exchange experiences, talk about and compare notes of, about things such as these five pillars? Because obviously, we, some states, many states, have seen a multitude of cases. Some have seen none. Some have seen one one or two. Or do you also see the center acting in, uh, in other ways beyond the sort of deliberative function and give more concrete advice, funding, even practical assistance in, in individual cases? Yeah, I think that's a fantastic question and, and really the one that the states should focus on because you could have two primary focus points in this advisory center. And you mentioned the different states and their level of experience. If you th if if you think about this on a scale of, say, zero, no experience, to, say, 100, with enormous experience in investment arbitration, an existing office in place, decades of experience, say, a Canada that really has all the processes in place to defend the state effectively. And zero may be the state that has bilateral investment treaties in place, but hasn't had any claims brought against it, or you know, very low on this scale would be the state that has entirely turned over its disputes to outside counsel and hasn't internalized these lessons of the cases. <clears throat> I think one of the primary things an advisory center could do is make sure that every state is at, say, 50% on this scale. And to get to 50%, it seems to me, is just making sure that these five pillars of effective dispute resolution are in place. And that's about creating a forum for all states to participate in these discussions about what's required and best practices. It's about information, an information clearinghouse where the advisory center could provide best practices and primary sources, uh, templates for states to adopt for laws or regulations, draft letters to investors, uh, that sort of thing, and capacity building. How do you take the information that's available from the center 
and translate that into establishing a lead state agency that can effectively represent the state. So to my mind, just these three inexpensive services of providing a forum, in-person and virtual, providing an information clearinghouse for states, and providing capacity building on these precise areas of establishing the five pillars of effective dispute resolution, you would bring these states up to 50%. And then what resources are available to take the state from 50% closer to 100%? You could provide advice for states that are having problems with foreign investors, how to avoid the disputes, possibilities for mediation, settlement, or preparing for arbitration. You could provide uh, representation services, either brokering representation services between the state and outside providers, law firms and barristers or so forth, and also potentially providing direct representation to states through the center. And finally, funds. The advisory center or the assistance mechanism could provide money directly to states to help with defray, help defray the costs of these uh, very expensive investment disputes. But to my mind, at this stage, we should be focusing on, states should be focusing on ensuring that they are all at a level of, say, 50% capacity. And then we can think about ways that an advisory center in the future could more effectively help these states build capacity over time. States will not only bring the costs down in these investment disputes and improve capacity within the states, but I think this will have an enormous, make an enormous contribution to the legitimization of this investment uh, dispute process. Right now, the, the process seems very toxic to many states. If you listen to the debates in UNCITRAL Working Group 3, you hear a lot of criticism about this process, but I think helping normalize the dispute resolution processes within the state would detoxify in some ways this process and make this a more acceptable means of resolving international investment disputes um, as well, which would be a huge advantage. The legitimacy point is a great one, I think, and a very interesting one. Do you think there's any connection between uh, both which states participate in the center and perhaps also which states pay for the center and the le legitimacy of the center? I do. Again, I think if we, if we're, our focus is wrong, if we think of this as a, an advisory center for developing states to receive money to defend against claims by investors of the donor states for breaches of international law by the recipient state, that's going to be a problem because the donor states will say, well, you know, this doesn't really make sense from our perspective. Whereas if the advisory center is in fact a center for all states developed and developing capital exporting and capital importing, primarily as a forum to exchange views, share information, and build capacity uh, even from developed states to developing states, then the donor states can say, well, this is first of all an advantage to us as a state that may have investment disputes, but also we are building capacity for these developing states, perhaps in particular, not simply to defend against claims brought by our investors, 
but to become better partners for the protection of foreign investment. That is to say, all states could benefit from having uh, the capacity of developing states raised to say 50% such that when the investor from a developed state has a problem with the developing state, the capacity exists within the government to help resolve this problem before it becomes a dispute and before it becomes an arbitration claim. And so I think, again, if we reconceptualize this investment assistance mechanism or advisory center as a forum for all states to participate and ensure that the institutional processes are in place for the avoidance and mitigation and management of investment disputes, then it's much easier to convince states to contribute to this with, with wealthier countries contributing more, perhaps, uh, but at the same time, it's not as hard a sell as just saying wealthier states give money to poorer states to defend against these claims, to pay millions of dollars to international law firms to defend against claims for breaches of international law. So far, we've talked about this center in terms of states being created by and for states, but there's obviously also some discussion, both formally and informally, in the working group about possibly making it available also to small and medium-sized enterprises. What are your thoughts on, on that? I think the European Union is interested in this idea as well of making this available to small and medium enterprises. I suppose if we think about this as different pieces of the investment arbitration process, then you could imagine SMEs being able to access certain aspects of the advisory center. For instance, if it's an information clearinghouse, why shouldn't SMEs also have access to this kind of information? If SMEs had access to some of these resources as well, it would presumably allow them to access ISDS more easily and would bring costs down potentially as well, which would be to the benefit of states and investors. My sense is that states are hesitant right now to introduce this to, to SMEs, just from the discussion I've heard at uh, Untitral Working Group 3. But perhaps we'll see some movement as the idea takes more concrete form and we think about different services that might be offered to different parties at different parts of the arbitration process. Speaking of concrete form, do you envision this as some sort of self-standing body that would be physically located somewhere with, with uh, staff and uh, office space? And, and if so, where? Or do you think potentially that this is something that might be part of whatever comes out of the working group in, in the larger sense in the form of some sort of uh, standing adjudicative body and that this would be under that umbrella? It's a good question. I think this gets to the heart of the problem that we're dealing with, that investment arbitration is decentralized. There's no institution like the WTO. You have the WTO in Geneva and you can set up, set up the advisory center naturally at the, the institution itself and states can access the advisory center from the seat of the institution. What do you do when you're creating something to support an ad hoc decentralized system like we have with ISDS? 
I don't think we should make the mistake of trying to find one place and housing the advisory center there and requiring states to interface just with that hub. I think it could be much more flexible. You could imagine regional centers, or you could imagine it being more virtual and benefiting from the existing resources that already exist, whether they're the arbitral institutions like the PCA or ICSID or other international bodies like UNCTAD or UNCITRAL. And could you not use the advisory center to capitalize on the fora that exist for bringing states together to talk about some of these issues? And when there's already a forum constituted, the advisory center could then send its own people to add a day or two on to do more specialized training, perhaps in some aspects of the dispute resolution process that's not necessarily covered by some of these other institutions, uh, including you know, helping states establish these five pillars for effective dispute resolution. And of course, much of this information could be provided virtually to states. There would be some advantage, I think, to having state agents, the person who's primarily responsible for the defending the state in investment arbitration, meeting from time to time at some central place, say once a year, to have discussions about events that had occurred over the prior year, presentations on best practices and so forth, partly because you can't beat these in-person meetings for developing the informal uh, networks as well. But also it then requires the state to designate an individual who's going to take responsibility for this process. And it ensures that we're all moving toward a, a situation where the state has an office, a person, a framework around these problems because this forum is established, who's your representative and who will attend and represent the state at these meetings. If a state is going to ask for assistance from an advisory center, I think it's fair that the advisory center and its donors could also ask the state to make a certain investment in the process to ensure that the resources are going to the state in a sustainable way to ensure that capacity building is institutional and not just for an individual who might go off to a law firm the next year and all that capacity of that state is lost. That's a great point and I think getting one specific person designated is, is a small but crucial step for, for many states and having one specific forum as opposed to the various conferences and, and institutions and, and bodies that exist now and typically covered by different people within the government. Uh, sounds like a great idea. You mentioned law firms, which, which also makes me think because many of our listeners, of course, work for law firms and some maybe even for law firms who primarily represent states and I have not heard anyone raise any issues or complaints about the, the prospect of an advisory center taking away work from them. But what, what is your sense having worked for law firms that the, the appetite among practicing lawyers in the field as for a sort of a state run advisory center potentially robbing law firms of uh, profitable instructions? Yes, I don't think that's a very significant concern. I think some law firms will recognize that they could work very seamlessly with this kind of advisory center actually contributing to the institutional capacity building of states because many of these individuals have 
unparalleled experience representing states in investment disputes. And many states either would not feel comfortable turning their, their extremely important cases, important in terms of public policy, financially, political, etc., over to an international advisory center. They have trusted counsel who they will continue to, to use. And so I think the, both the law firm personnel with experience would be happy to work with states through an advisory center to continue to build capacity and represent them. And I should think that the advisory center would be very happy to bring on the experience of these individuals to help with these cases. There's simply no way an advisory center could step in and represent developing states um, throughout this whole process of dispute avoidance and dispute resolution cost-effectively today. It costs, as you know, millions of dollars uh, in fees for each of these cases. Now, an advisory center can help bring these costs down and make the process more efficient, serve perhaps as a broker, including potentially for certain pro bono services, but I don't think there'll be any serious competition for law firms, uh, at least in the foreseeable future, to my mind. Okay, so no reason to worry, in other words. <laughs> and now, so just to, to wrap up, what, what do you know what is on the agenda? Because I don't. What is happening now? You said there's a, a questionnaire has been circulated, and I think next week is the session in, in Vienna, the fall session. What can we expect in terms of progress when it comes to the advisory center? I don't think, I'll have to double check, but I don't think the advisory center is on the agenda this session, I think it's for the spring, that will have given time for the secretariat to make sense of the responses on these questionnaires and to perhaps focus the discussion a bit more in the spring in New York, wherever it might be held virtually, um, so that we're not constantly at this very abstract level of an advisory center doing something for some parties at some point uh, with some uncertain funding. We can have some more concrete proposals. Now, the Dutch government commissioned a feasibility study from CCSI, which is very useful. So there are a lot of, of the groundwork has been laid, but I think if the secretary could crystallize some of the options for states to discuss more concretely, we could make some significant progress in this area because I don't think there's any real objection to some form of an assistant mechanism by any state. Um, they're just very practical problems to work through. What specifically should it do and who's going to pay for it? Interesting times. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jeremy, for, for taking the time. This has been incredibly helpful. I think we will link both your EGIL blog post and the Columbia Center for Sustainable Investment Feasibility Study as well in the, in the body of the podcast uh, episode so that people who are interested can can read up terrific well thank you very much for having me joel it's been a real pleasure and now for the second segment we have the right to be heard in the time of the pandemic uh so this topic came to us because of a recent case 
um, between brought by several German banks against uh, Spain for a renewables claim, arguing that the arbitrator's stated reasons for insisting on a virtual hearing instead of holding it at The Hague, where it was originally supposed to be, um, was based on misrepresentations about their ability to travel during the coronavirus pandemic. So it was a challenge to the entire tribunal. Um, and that tribunal was made up of Christopher Greenwood, Charles Ponce, and Rodrigo Orimuno, Orimuno. Um, so Rodrigo becomes from Costa Rica, uh, and Christopher Greenwood comes from the UK, and uh, Charles Ponce comes from Switzerland. So the uh, the reason why I'm talking about their nationalities and why it comes into play is because the reasons given on why they couldn't travel or their ability to travel during the pandemic was um, due to the travel restrictions on where they were coming from. So um, for Rodrigo coming from Costa Rica, the travel was not, it had to be essential travel, and then there was a need to quarantine upon arrival. Um, Christopher Greenwood coming from the UK, the restrictions for him was that there was no quarantines actually going to The Hague or in the Netherlands, but um, although it was recommended, but coming back to the UK, he would have to quarantine uh, for 14 days. Um, I believe there was nothing preventing Charles Ponce from, um, according to Swiss law, about whether he would have to quarantine coming back or um, as far as the Netherlands requiring Switzerland uh, nationals to quarantine. But I believe maybe, maybe you are about to to get to this, Brian, and if so, I apologize. But I, before we forget it, before I forget it, I think this in the Netherlands, at least, I think this has changed now. And I think I, I saw something the PCA released. Am I am I jumping the gun on something? No, 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 no. no. Good. Um, I think that for PCA hearings in The Hague, there is now obviously there are always exceptions to all these uh, rather draconian um, restrictions on on who can enter a country. And in the Netherlands, if you do work on behalf of an international organization. That could be one such exception, and that then supposedly applies also to the PCA. So if it's a PCA case, you may be able to get around whatever other quarantine rules there are if you are not working for an international organization. And I've heard, I wasn't paying a lot of attention, but I, I heard some other people, in arbitration lawyers, talk about this being potentially the case also in France. Uh, and if you have, for example, an exit hearing that is seated in Paris, not seated legally, but you have your hearings at the World Bank in Paris. Maybe you can get around the same uh, restrictions in France, assuming it's an exit case because it's an international organization. So I think we are seeing some reactions to this now. Obviously, I don't think that would apply to like any unsitral ad hoc case or even maybe to a commercial arbitration case. But if it's a PCA or an exit case, you could at least make the case that it's work on behalf of an international organization and as such, you should be able to get around the restrictions. Well, I would argue that you're hired by the parties, but go ahead, Sonia. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 that's exactly it. I was just wondering, is it, is it work on behalf of the organization? I mean, if you are working for ICSID or the PCA, then yes, you are servant of the institution. But if you're just an arbitrator or a party, then, then I, I, agree, I don't know. Agree. We, we also, there's a very big potential here that I am not uh, accurately restating <laughs> what, what, the, what the exceptions actually say. It could be, I think maybe even in the PCA case in the Netherlands, it might be explicit in the exceptions that if you're involved in an arbitration administered by the PCA, you are exempt. But, mm. but I don't know. The, the larger point, I think, still stands, though, that mm -hmm. uh, creative lawyers, of which there are many in our business, are now starting <laughs> to find ways around. Yeah. Yes. 
so this case led us to um, this right to have an in-person hearing, and under that comes under the main umbrella of the right to be heard. So as we know, the right to be heard is a core component of the arbitral due process. Um, it has many expressions and iterations in national law and in arbitral rules, um, and generally speaking, the right to be heard serves as one of the only few de minimis limitations on a tribunal's otherwise broad discretion to decide on its own procedures. So if we look to just some examples between rules and laws, we have the ICDR rule, Article 21, 20 parentheses 1, that the tribunal has the power to conduct the arbitration in whatever manner it considers appropriate, provided that the parties are treated equally and each party has the right to be heard. UNSATRAL rules, Article 17.1, says the same thing, uh, given that each party is given a reasonable opportunity to present its case. Um, in the national laws, we have an excerpt from the English Arbitration Act, 33.1, uh, giving each party a reasonable opportunity of putting his case and dealing with that of his opponent. Um, and the UNSATRAL model law equally says um, that the parties shall be treated equally uh, with equality, and each party shall be given a full opportunity of presenting his case. Um, so why is this right to be heard so important? Well, it's due process. It's the right of due process. Um, and it is one of the few grounds to set aside an award under the New York Convention or the national law. So if that right is violated, any award arising out of that right could be set aside in uh, the competent jurisdiction. And in a corollary to that is that the arbitrators have a duty to ensure that uh, they choose to conduct the proceedings, that the award is ultimately rendered enforceable, query whether an arbitrator has to consider enforceability when making its decision. However, it is an, an underlying uh, point. Um, so does the right to be heard mean a right to a hearing or an in-person hearing, uh, to be exact? Um, so the right to be heard does not imply a right to a hearing and much less an in-person hearing. But many national laws specifically contemplate oral hearings as an election that may be made from either party. Uh, so the Swedish Arbitration Act, Section 24.1, for example, says that where the parties so request and provided that the parties have not otherwise agreed, an oral hearing shall be held prior to the determination of an issue referred to the arbitrator's for resolution. Um, and the UNSATRAL Rule 17.3 similarly state that if at an appropriate stage of the proceedings any party so requests, the arbitral tribunal shall hold hearings for the presentation of evidence by witnesses, uh, including expert witnesses, or for oral arguments. Um, now, it raises a couple of questions, and I just I'll query on the language, Joel, uh, because under the Swedish Arbitration Act, I was reading the Swedish and it says, uh, I'm not going to do it because everyone in Sweden will laugh at me, but like, Quillemannen skal göra parterna tillfället att i alla behovlig omfattning utföra sin talan skriftlig eller muntlig. Now, that's Bless oral. You. <laughs> that's oral, right? Muntlig means orally. Does Correct. that mean, according to, because I would only read that as orally, meaning orally could also be over Skype or Zoom. I'm just, it's oral advocacy as opposed to written advocacy. Would you say, according to the nuance, that monthly could mean in person or like presence or in person? It's a good question. And let me say, as the person who unofficially has translated the Swedish Arbitration Act into English, <laughs> I'm asking but in the English, in the English version, it is oral as well. So we can proceed on the assumption that uh, your Swedish is correct and it is oral that is the word used. And I think uh, the case 
says where I've seen this, where it's popped up and it's being discussed, it's also under the ICSID rule 32 or 30 something, where it's also the phrase oral hearing mm-hmm. that is used. Exactly. So to answer your question, I think it's the same in many contexts that you see this kind of regulation that it's an oral hearing. Whether or not that means that you have to be in person is obviously a matter of interpretation. Right. So that, it, that raises the first question. Yes, it does. And I mean, I don't, to, to give it away already, I, I don't think that it necessarily entails a right to have the hearing in person just based on the phrase oral hearing. But that's my personal take. Right. Um, so we can address that first question, which is, is the right to a hearing satisfied by remote hearings? Um, so we'd hope that although most we'd hope most council would be accommodating and not forcing people to travel during the pandemic, um, there is much debate about whether um, you have a right to basically have people come in for an oral hearing, if possible, given the circumstances of the case. Um, and you have to kind of go through the facts and circumstances around the actual remote hearing to see if it differs in certain respects of what you would get or expect in in-person hearings. And we've kind of touched on this before casually, but now we can talk about it, uh, you know, under the provisions of, of these rules. Um, so first, most notably, you know, if witnesses do not appear before the tribunal, there's concerns that can be raised, and we've discussed this regarding the re- reliability of witness testimony or the efficacy of cross-examination. So whether you're able to have that candid banter with the witness or if the tribunal is able to notice uh, what's going on with the witness. So that comes to my second point of, or second difference between remote hearings and in-person hearings is this immediacy, um, looking to the witness in their eyes and seeing if there's um, you know, something that they're not being truthful about or if there's concerns about, you know, that witness having someone to the side whispering answers into their ears. Um, so these concerns have led some commentators to suggest that the right to a hearing, particularly under various arbit- national arbitration laws, cannot be satisfied by a remote hearing. And then we actually have a Swedish commentator found by Callum, uh, Johan Linskog, who has claimed that the right to an oral hearing is according to the Section 24 of the Swedish Arbitration Act, to amount to a right to an in-person oral hearing. So he has clarified that question um, that we had. Now, Professor Maxi Scherer wrote an, a great article on this called Remote Hearings and International Arbitration and Analytical Framework, uh, which gives a more nuanced approach and not necessarily a definitive approach, and explains that so long as the remote hearing allows for an oral and synchronous exchange of arguments or evidence as, a spo- as opposed to written and asynchronous exchange of arguments or evidence in the party's briefs, a remote hearing can satisfy a party's request for, quote, a hearing. Um, and many institutions are allowing these uh, remote hearings to take place, so clearly they feel that it abides by their rules. So um, the LCIA rules um, explicitly contemplate remote hearings, actually, in Rule 19.2. That says that arbitral tribunals shall organize the conduct of the hearing in advance in consultation with the parties. As to form, a hearing may take place in person or virtually by conference call, video conference, or using other communications technology with all the uh, participants in one or more geographical places or in a combined form. Is this in the very recent LCIA rules? Do you know? Because they just yes. issued a new... Okay, so it, it's a, an, an adaptation or listening to... Absolutely. 
I think everyone is adapting. So we have the ICC that actually issued a COVID guidance note um, that said the language in 25.2 of the ICC rules that provides for um, a hearing, the language can be construed as to referring to the parties having an opportunity for a live adversarial exchange and not to preclude a hearing to take place in person by virtual means if the circumstances so warrant. So, that leads to the next point. What are the circumstances that would render a virtual hearing inappropriate? Mm-hmm. So we obviously have a balancing test. And Professor Scherer suggests at least four factors that we can look to. Uh, the first one is, A, the reason for the remote hearing. B, the content of the planned hearing. C, the envisaged technical framework for the remote hearing. And D, the timing and the cost comparing them uh, the remote hearing to a physical one. Um, and then you would say the reasons to have a remote hearing would be um, that an in-person hearing is clearly, although dominant, it could be uh, difficult in such instances as a pandemic. But you can think of less exceptional reasons that wouldn't be so obvious. For example, the cost of travel is too high for a witness. There's mm-hmm. professional inconvenience. Uh, medical reasons, someone's sick in your family, or the ability to travel. For example, you couldn't get a visa or a visa is costly. Uh, you have to quarantine or if there's just, you know, reasons that people don't want to fly because they're, you know, at the forefront of the climate change discussion. <laughs> yes, um, that's true. <laughs> yeah. All of these could be, uh, I actually know someone here in England who um, is really against taking planes because of the carbon footprint, but works for a travel agency. So that's confusing. That is um, confusing. <laughs> so look at the content of the hearing. And, you know, this is definitely going to be whether this hearing is, for example, a hearing on an evidentiary issue that the parties have been debating or whether it's a final merits hearing. You can see that, you know, the merits hearing could have greater weight in a reason for having an in-person hearing because of the ability to cross-examine witnesses, etc. So we so and then to just jump on what I said again on for for the content of the hearing, these witnesses are. Um, quite crucial in the weighing of evidence for the tribunal, and it can often um, make or break your case. Um, it can, but remote hearings are really susceptible to, you know, a weak cross-examination or witness coaching, or um, as Callum, our researcher, has put, and Joel likes to say, the je ne sais quoi of the cost <laughs> of having someone in person being examined. Mm-hmm. Another. Just the technological framework. So do you have the requisite um, technology in order to run the hearing efficiently? Joel talked about how he had 15 computers set up. Like, can that be done? Um, and can you uh, what what can a tribunal do to combat uh, if you do have the appropriate technology to combat against any confidentiality considerations or security considerations. Um, that seems when you have 10 computers being sent out to 10 different people in 10 different jurisdictions could be susceptible to some form of hacking. Um, and then can it be, you know, insufficient? That uh, Can you have an insufficient hearing, basically, based off those technological advances? Mm-hmm. And then the timing and costs, of course, you need to decide whether the circumstances so warrant if you weigh the pandemic against the, the minimal cost of having people take the train in from Leeds to London, um, that maybe cost will be low enough to kind of combat any concerns for um, the pandemic. As for the, the content, I think that's a crucial 
point, especially when it comes to witnesses, because it is when you introduce witnesses, be they fact or expert witnesses, that you mm-hmm. typically run into complications with the remote hearings. If it's only the the legal teams in the tribunal, they can operate in one language typically, or if it's a, you know a, a dual language proceedings, but then they are, have the right to to plead their cases in both languages. Everyone is. On board with that, but if you have witnesses, specifically if they're fact witnesses, in the most typical case, they don't necessarily feel comfortable testifying in English or French or what the procedural language may be. So you need interpretation. They also don't know the rules of the game. You know, you have a lot of back and forth, and they have never been in arbitration before. They're not really repeat players. It becomes really tricky. I'm the secretary to tribunal in a case, an exit case, and this is a public record. I think even that the, the hearing will be put on uh, the video recording of the hearing will be put on the exit webpage so I can oh. talk about this uh, freely where we had a uh, hearing a few weeks ago and it was on a bifurcated very discreet jurisdictional issue mm-hmm. with only the the legal teams there's no there were no witnesses whatsoever it was basically open and closing and then rebuttal and reply and then some tribunal questions and it was a two day hearing ran so smoothly mm. i think in that in that case uh, typically, I think in ca- cases like those, it will be hard to make the case that you have an absolute right to do it in person instead, because it is relatively easy to do it remotely. Whereas, if you have a 15-day merits hearing with 25 witnesses and cross examinations and several languages, then it's more of a challenge. Have you had? Sorry, go ahead, Sonia. Uh, sorry, I was just going to say, um, not me personally, but people in my team just recently had a ca- um, hearing of a week where they had um, witnesses, factual witnesses that were um, based in Africa, uh, which they had to cross-examine. Um, and this was all done remotely. Um, so it was pretty challenging, but it went well. Uh, you know, one of the things that they said was difficult was... Um, the witness, usually when you cross-examine a witness, you always point to the document um, that you're going to ask them to speak on, right? And so every time the witness was like, I can't see the document on my screen. I can't see. It's not up yet. Or I can't see. So it would significantly delay the what usually is a is a natural flow of Q&A going on with the witness. And you couldn't really tell if it was rail if you had a technical difficulty or if it was to buy time or if it was you know and so what they did at some point was um they sent over a local council to his home so he could give that give him the physical documents and and after that everything went really smoothly it was much better so there are little things like that you know when you test that you know that it doesn't work but i agree that once you add experts witnesses to the mix, it becomes more complicated, especially, I would say, if both parties are not in equal footing, right? Mm-hmm. Because you don't always have the same number of witnesses and some witnesses testify in a language and some might in another. But what happens if it's not the same, you know, on both? But that's anyway. actually, that's a really good point because these provisions on due process include the equality of the parties. It's not just the right to be heard for the individual mm-hmm. parties. So that, that is a good point. Yeah. I, I I also have a, a question for you guys because this is what I've been pulling my hair on. <laughs> I can't say which case, which rules, whatever. So I'm going to try to stay vague. But uh, a lot of the rules you mentioned, the ICC rules, the LCIA rules, either provide expressly for the possibility of the tribunal to conduct hearings remotely, 
right? Or doesn't address it specifically like the ICC rules currently as currently drafted, uh, but give the tribunal the discretion to do so. You know, it's not incompatible with the wording of the of the rules, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Uh, what happens if the rules expressly provide that you may conduct hearings remotely, but only if the parties so agree? What happens? Because one of the parties want it to be remote because a um, million reasons, you know, and specifically now because of, you know, not being able to travel whatsoever. But the other party just objects. Then what happens? <laughs> uh, you have to go with party agreement, no? But you also yep. have typically, in the, it's hard not knowing which rules we're talking about, but most of them yeah. also contain a general provision giving the tribunal the right to conduct the proceedings in a way that it sees fit. It has kind of a, a kind of a wide mandate to direct procedural issues uh, discretion. But if there's an express provision saying unless the parties agree, then I don't I don't see how yeah. the tribunal can get around that. Yeah. Well, I- yeah, well, I kind of agree with Jill also in a way that you've got this overriding duty of the arbitrator to make sure that the proceedings move forward. Because if the parties don't agree, so that means you can't have a remote hearing. Um, but if you can't have a physical hearing or that, I think that's the problem. Is if it is it that you cannot have a physical right. hearing or is it more difficult for people to attend? Right. Uh, but let's imagine, worst case scenario, you just cannot have a physical hearing given the present circumstances, um, that, you know, which result in a, in a, in a delay of proceedings, significant delay of the proceedings, then wouldn't the arbitrator have a duty to, or have the right to, um, to, to, you know, say, okay, you know, given the circumstances, this is going to go ahead remotely unless there's, you know, arguments that convince me otherwise that I shouldn't do it, you know? But that's mm-hmm. a risk because then you would be kind of in contradiction with the other sentence which says you need agreement of the parties and then the award could be challenged yeah. and so forth, so on and so forth, right? That's a very Absolutely. big difficulty, I think. So, hey, yeah. I, uh, yeah, you're right. And you, you won't get a good answer out of us. It's really two, two very strongly opposing interests. Okay. There's a line yeah. somewhere. I agree. I agree. I agree with Brian's starting point. Like we have rules that you can deviate from and there are rules you cannot deviate from and a rule that says you can do X if both parties agree, but not otherwise. That seems to be the latter category that you cannot derogate from. Mm. At the same time, if that means that one party, you know, basically renders it impossible to have a physical hearing, you could you could just shut down the entire arbitration. And at some point, the arbitrator's discretion to make sure the case can proceed should probably override. But uh, who knows? It's a very good question. Yeah. In fact, interestingly, the rules also provide that you can uh, go ahead with the hearing if one person, uh, one party doesn't participate, which I think is also the case in other mm. other rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, that's a good point. Then you're like, well, they're not going to participate in any hearing either way, so they don't get a say as to the for you know. Uh, as to which format of the hearing we're going to go for, but that's another mm. another story, anyways. This is just a real good debate, issue, guys. Good debate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and well, and these can be—they have been challenged. Uh, we've seen challenges on people um, hold or tribunals granting remote hearings uh, that have been challenged in, in national courts. We have two examples of the U.S. 
Um, and these absent truly exceptional circumstances, these challenges have failed. Um, so the U.S. District Court uh, heard a challenge based on Article 5.1b of the New York Convention. Um, the party seeking to set it aside claimed that the tribunal's failure to hear its expert rendered the award fundamentally unfair. Uh, the district court challenged, uh, rejected the challenge, noting that the tribunal had offered to hear the witness via video conference, but the option was refused. So that's kind of to your point. If you give the parties the option, well, it doesn't talk about the point that it overrides the, that the parties must agree, but, um, if the tribunal is giving the opportunity and various alternatives to an in-person hearing, I think there needs to be some sort of reasonableness on behalf of the parties. Um, and then there was another, uh, Another district, U.S. District Court case um, that heard a challenge to an award based on the party's non-physical presence at the hearing. Uh, that challenge also failed, and the court noted that when a party asserts that its physical presence at the arbitration is prevented, it is generally unable to prevail on such a defense if there are available alternative means of presenting its case. Um, and finally, and this is where we'll end up, uh, before we kind of wrap it up generally, that there was an Australian court that considered set-aside proceedings based on, among other things, the difficulty with a witness's remote testimony. Uh, the witness lacked relevant documents, Sadia, to your point, um, the lack of a qualified interpreter. Someone appeared to be in the room when the witness was doing his testimony. Uh, and notwithstanding these defects, the Australian court declined to set aside the award in part. Uh, the court considered that the video technology was itself adequate to the task and Further, the witness was presented by video conference at the insistence of the party seeking to set aside. So really, it was their own undoing. Um, so, I, you know, this is coming up in every single iteration and court. And, the, you know, I, I know that the human uh, European Court of Human Rights has um, heard this issue. Um, and they said that according to the court's established case law, in proceedings before a court of first and only instance, the first right to a public hearing. So they talked about a public hearing um, in the sense of Article 6, uh, Section 1, entails an entitlement to an oral hearing unless there are exceptional circumstances that justify dispensing with such hearing. Um, so, However, the courts are different from arbitration. The, the right to be heard in court is different. They, you, generally speaking, as a, as a normal person, you don't have a right to, to arbitration, but you always have a right to a court proceeding. Right. Uh, but is, is it right? Is it right? Is it a right to a in-person court proceeding? Mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. that's true. <laughs> uh, who knows? But this is coming up everywhere. There's Swedish domestic court cases. Um, yeah, and so we've I've heard we talked about this before. We have not been able to back this up, but I had heard through the grapevine that there's a Swiss case saying that there is a right to a physical hearing under due process under Swiss arbitration law. And I heard this from someone who generally knows what they talk about, but I have not been able to <laughs> find it online. So, Maybe we can just uh, flag that that might be the case. And if so, maybe let us know and we can share it on Twitter because Switzerland yes. is obviously a, a frequent seat in international arbitration. So that would be interesting. And you had said an absolute right. Um, that might be me paraphrasing, too. Okay. I can't even remember. <laughs> <laughs> even even then, I mean, it, yeah, depending on how the domestic court will see this, if it is an absolute right, you even have then you really get into, you know, a totally different kettle of fish. Uh, so, I mean, so the, the question, the answer to our generic question of is there a right, um, we don't really know. It depends. And, um, and I, I'm sorry if you already mentioned it, but there's, 
this whole question and, and the reason why this topic was chosen, actually, I think, was, was also because there's currently an ICA working project on this subject. It's called Does a Right to a Physical Hearing Exist in International Arbitration? I think it's led by um, Yasmin Lalu from uh, Shafitz and Lindsay, James Hosking, and Professor Giacomo Ro- Rojas. Sorry if I'm pronouncing your name. <laughs> and there was a call for expressions of interest to participate as a national reporter because they're, they're working on this report, actually. They're going to compare jurisdictional approaches. So it's going to come up, um, I think they say, due to be released by the end of 2020. So, mm. you know, we'll um, follow up. By, by which yeah. point this whole segment will be superfluous, basically, or redundant. Then we'll but have an expert. We're always ahead of the game, guys. <laughs> that is true. Ahead of the game. <laughs> um, we'll see. Well, it's time to uh, crack a beer open and uh, lighten things up a bit. Doom scrolling is our happy fun time topic, or should I say our gloomy sad time topic of this podcast. What do we mean by doom scrolling and why am I talking about it even at all? Um, I stumbled upon this article on Above the Law about doom scrolling, and I thought it was extremely timely and interesting for us arbitration lawyers. Um, so just definition first. So, in fact, it's been referred by multiple news outlets, New York Times, NPR, and like I mentioned, above the law. Uh, they define it as an endless scroll through social media and a desperate search for clarity. The experience of sinking into emotional quicksand with binge, binging on doom and gloom news and incessantly scrolling through bottomless doom and gloom news for hours as you sink into a pool of despair. Does it sound familiar to you guys? Have you been guilty of that's, doing That's 2020, scroll? isn't it? That is like the essence of 2020. That's the essence of 2020. And what the article was referring to specifically was in the context of COVID, of course, we're always... Um, scrolling for, you know, up-to-date information of what's going on. And it's oftentimes doom, you know, like negative news of, you know, how many virus, you know, cases are going on or what the impact is on our economy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And why is it important? Because um, to talk about this, because it's not just a bad habit. It's not good for your thumb to scroll down in any event all day long. Uh, yeah, that's, I don't think that's the main problem. It's not the, <laughs> no. the thumb muscle that's the primary yeah. issue. But, you know, people have had issues with that as well. You're, you know, you're joking, but I've seen like some people develop this new kind of issue with their hand now. So hospitals have to deal with this because they, they're constantly on their phones. So anyways, so that's not the real issue. Um, it has been combined with screen addiction, which takes a significant toll on our mental and physical well-being according to health experts. And the activity in itself can make us angry, anxious, depressed, unproductive, and less connected with our loved ones and ourselves. Um, why is this relevant to lawyers specifically? Well, it's not a secret that lawyers battle mental health issues like depression, anxiety, and substance abuse in greater numbers than most professionals. So doom scrolling risks adding to this already glooming experience that is our life to be a lawyer, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I think it's also relevant because in COVID times, a lot of us are 
if not working exclusively from home, you're working much more from home. And so we are spending much more time on, you know, just news outlets and media. And I think we have just multiplying screens, right? We have, I right now, speaking for myself, have three different screens in front of me. You know, there's one with my notes, one with you guys on it, one with my emails. And it's just you're constantly looking at different outlets. Um, so as a result, I feel like we're spending much more time on news outlets. But also, and this is a bit different than the doom scrolling thing, is that I feel like we're spending much, much more time on social media. And now you guys tell me about your experience so far, but it's specifically professional social media, such as, for example, LinkedIn, where we're looking for not necessarily negative news, but just news about what's going on in arbitration, you know, or Twitter or whatever it is. Like, what's the new, the recent case? What's the, what are the rankings? What are the new conferences? Who's doing what? Um, and this actually as well has been linked with, um, you know, a high, higher number of people being depressed and anxious, uh, looking at what other people are doing. Uh, what, what has been your experience, guys, uh, with respect to that? I shut off the, you know, your weekly screen time report notification, <laughs> I think in April or something. Cause see, seeing, cause I, I now when I work, I also have several screens, but I do everything through my one laptop. I use my iPad for some minor things and obviously my phone, but most of my interaction with the, the outside world goes to the one machine and seeing the amount of hours per day that I spend on that, just black on white being reported is so incredibly depressing. So I've shut it off now. I don't think that obviously affects how much I actually use it. I just choose not to know about it because it frightens me. (laughs) (laughs) I have found that, you know, we've, we're such uh, rolling stones in this industry where it's, you just move, 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 meeting, going here, getting a new case, working on something new that when we were all forced to shut down, I think a lot of people panicked about the ability to put your career forward, to move your career forward, to advance, et cetera. And so when you would see, especially like deep in the lockdown in London, to see people like organizing online conferences or doing this, you'd be like, am I am I doing enough in this pandemic to make this worth it? Am I taking advantage? Do I need to sign up for another course or do I need to get qualified? You know, you get this panic and that really does, affect you where you're just like, am I doing enough? That's anxiety inducing, even just talking about it right now. Speaking about the the doom aspect of it, it seems to me, and I obviously don't really work for a law firm, but it seems to me that the worst of the like bad news scrolling when it comes to the legal industry, including the world of arbitration, is kind of behind us. And now there are no more, you know, news about layoffs. And I think maybe we even talked about this offline that there's this wave both in the US and it's coming to London of law firms starting to pay out like coronavirus bonuses to all of the associates who have been working under very tough circumstances lately. So that it might just be my, I don't know what, what your take is, that it, it's, it's less doom and gloom in the industry now compared to three or four months ago. Mm. I feel like, you know what, we're going to see the impact, the financial impact of all of this, even in the coming months. So a law firms are definitely cautious. Um, about what's happening right now. I mean, I still hear that there's hiring freeze in a lot of firms. So, you know, worst case scenario, you're laying, you're still laying, people being laid off. And best case scenario, I think people are being a bit cautious. There are still, you know, movements, like some firms are hiring, um, but it's usually uh, lateral, I feel, lateral yeah. moves. So yeah, it does you're probably mean right. that 
someone has been, you know, not necessarily laid off, but, you know, at the end of his career in that firm and, and been asked maybe to go or whatever. And then another firm is, is having him. So I would I would still be cautious in saying that, you know, we've we've been through that chaotic time. I still I completely agree with what Brian says. I think that the more time you spend looking at what other people are doing and how they're recognized and so on. And in fact, when I was reading this article, I remember there was this article from, I think it was 2014 or something by when Emmanuel Gaia did his um, study on the sociology of arbitration and, and one other actor in the arbitration field that he mentioned were those merchants of recognition uh, you know, those guard people and those, you know, conference. Um, and, and, and I would say that, you know, a like on LinkedIn is also one of this merchant of recognition. You know, people are looking for who's looked at my tweet and who's looked at my. And uh, it's um, it's it's pretty um, addictive. And I think there's been research done that there's actually a really good documentary on this. It's called The Social Dilemma on Netflix right now, which they explain how they addict you to mm-hmm. all these social networks. And and it's not just for teenagers looking at video games. I do think that people in even in this specific community get addicted to that. Yeah, of level course. Of, and it's it's I don't want to sound like a French socialist here, Saudi <laughs> all, all of all of these all of these companies obviously have an interest in us staying for as long as possible on their site so that we can look at more ads. Like I think the Wikipedia, which they mentioned in this documentary, is like the only well-known, yeah. widely used thing on the Internet that doesn't have that purpose. Everything else is just closed boxes designed to keep you scrolling, mm-hmm. essentially, mm-hmm. through various design features. That's the whole thing, and we know that intellectually, but, of course, you get wrapped up in it anyway. Yeah, I think, you know, this, it's, it's almost like a confirmation bias of your own depression. So you're in this doom scroll and you don't want to watch a puppy video because that's irrelevant right now because the world's burning. And so you yeah. just d- d- dive deeper because that's the only thing that's meaningful and that's the only thing that will make you feel in this moment. And so you, other things that you would use to have like escapist strategies from not feeling great. Now you're just sitting there being like, I just want to see more of this stuff that I know is horrible. Yeah, that's true. And so, you know, it's very gloomy and, um, you know, negative <laughs> feeling oriented I, we're, we're talking about. So it is happy fun time. So let's please have positive solutions to this problem. Yes. So let's brainstorm solutions together. Um, I don't know about you guys, but at least in my firm, we've been discussing a lot about, you know, well-being, like how to get work more efficiently in these times, yada, 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 yada. And I think we've had already a podcast on motivation during this time. And so I'm not going to really talk about this. But one thing that struck to me is people forget that the boundaries that we used to have between professional and personal lives have been completely, completely blurred today. And even if before we had this smartphone and the BlackBerry in our pocket, I think even more so now because we're in our home you know, doing these team talk, you know, talks or Zoom talks, but our colleagues at the same time looking at our phone and at social media and everything's kind of with our kids in the background, with, you know, whatever is <laughs> going on. And you can't mentally shut off. So you have this mental exhaustion and anxiety by the time your day is over. Um, so one one tip that one of our um not coaches, but one of our, you know, consultant who came us gave us was try to have this break between your your workday. So, for example, if you are going to look at news, whatever, 
time where you're doing that in the morning, you know, like the old fashioned newspaper reading before with your coffee kind of thing, instead of being on your phone and scrolling down while you're typing a draft or listening to a podcast at the same time, you know, like don't do that. And and when the day's finished, just shut off everything and, and no screen time whatsoever. Um, he was also saying multiply hobbies that are require you um, to not look at a screen. So, for example, just, um, you know, if you do yoga or something, you can't possibly do that if you're still looking at a screen. Um, so develop those hobbies which require reading. I, you know, we're not reading books anymore. I mean, I've, I, 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 you know, a lot of people say, oh, I've got more time, so I'm reading books. And I, I have to confess, I've just been spending much more time on the internet uh, instead of actually opening physical books and and just disconnecting with my phone and stuff um, mm-hmm. what, what other things do you think you know we can do to to prevent this anxiety attacks from- <laughs> <laughs> uh, i i don't know i'm still suffering from it totally yeah <laughs> same no get, get outside i think is yeah. crucial to the extent that you're allowed including bars and restaurants and whatever your local yeah. jurisdiction allows you to do. That's been the only thing really keeping me sane, I think, because I agree with you and you're obviously right when the, whoever the professional person who told you this is also right, Sadia, that it, it, you should create boundaries and approach your d- digital 18 hours a day in a much more structured way. Uh, but I can't or I haven't maybe worked hard enough. So I, 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 I can't. I can't quit smoking. I just can't <laughs> No, basically. So, and, but, but if you're outside, if you're going for a walk or a run or having a beer with a friend or a family member, that's, you know, you're forced to leave that pattern. That's, that's the only thing that's worked for me, but I also have a, a terribly bad discipline. I wrote, uh, I did, like, I got interviewed for this uh, young exit thing that they started doing these um, publications. And at the end, it said, what is your life motto? And Joel's going to laugh at me. But my life motto was don't compete with others, compete with yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think if you kind of, it's not really like an active concrete thing that you can do to combat this. But if you just think, have I done enough for myself today? I think you'll often be fulfilling your own expectations. But if you start thinking about and seeing what other people are doing, because social media at the end of the day is a well-curated version of someone's life, right? They, they've attended this conference or they've spoken at this conference, but what they didn't tell you is that they barely prepared for it and they did the conference with underwear underneath their desks because they got out of bed. <laughs> so you don't know how people are getting through the day. So um, that's all, you know, a LinkedIn person putting their suit and tie they haven't put that suit and tie on for six months. So um, you just can't compete with someone else. You just have to set targets and goals for yourself each day. And if you fulfill those, then you've done your job. Um, but the second you start looking at other people is the second you go crazy. That's mm, it hurts hurt me to say this, but yeah, the, the American is right. <laughs> no, that's absolutely bang on. I think this is exactly what we should you know, end this segment on. This is just focus on yourself. This is such mm-hmm. a, I think, and be gentle. And it's already a difficult time. And if you can get through your to-do list already during the day, like that's already tap on the shoulder, like well done. Exactly. If you start opening like the world of, oh my gosh, look at what this person, that person, this person's doing. It's just, it's, it's useless. I don't yeah, think. Yeah, you'll always it. find someone that's yeah. done something more than you that day. But, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, what do you do? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. 
Yeah. Right. A little, a little happier notes to end on, I think. Exactly. Oh, that's same here, actually. And I am, for one, very happy. As the self-appointed word fascist, I'm happy that we talked about remote hearings throughout this entire segment and not virtual hearings. It's another uh-huh. thing that has been annoying me. So, gold star to you, Brian. <laughs> virtual to me sounds like you know virtual reality. Like it's not an actual hearing. It's not real. It's it's faked or simulated. It's it's a hearing, but by remote means. It's not a virtual hearing. We we virtually had a hearing. Sounds like you didn't even have a hearing. Very we'll very good. Have um, what is it called? Like um, in Star Wars? Oh my god. Yeah, hologram hearing. <laughs> that, just, <laughs> that would be great. In your bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've heard, and I'm not going to say who, but I have a friend um, who's also in the arbitration um, arbitration practitioner, and her husband is also an arbitration practitioner, and they both have um, a big, like, a pull-out screen, you know, like, in, in a projector, so they project the webinars in their living room when they watch it so it's kind of like well i've got gary Byrne in my you know in my living room today (laughs) (laughs) sipping their tea and stuff that's that's surreal yeah so yeah oh well happy happy fun time happy (laughs) thank you sadia yeah happy fun time and thank you i reporter our sponsor for this season as well. I think we'll have some some new sales copy for you guys coming up maybe in the next episode. And also, as we already said, we'll have the actual reporter slash editor himself, Luke Peterson, at some point. Yes. Thank you, Jan, who d- who does all the grunt work much better than we could ever, and to Caleb, who is doing the research for us. Yes, thank you very much. Contact us at thearbitrationstation@gmail.com or follow us at the Arb Station. We're still trying to make hashtag ISDS movie happen, so cast yes. your vote. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye, guys.